Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John the Baptist beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it is already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus, and it's a pleasure to see you all this morning. Let's begin with some prayer. God, I'm thankful that we are in a place where we can just sit and saturate in your word as it's read over us, as it's washed over us, but I'm also a bit daunted by the amount of text and the beauties and the riches and my tendency to talk too much. And uh, I pray that by the power of your spirit, God, you would guide us even now, that we would see with eyes afresh who you are and the brilliance of your son, and that you'd continue to grow us more in our submission to Jesus, our celebration of Jesus, and our joy in Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> I'm going to begin something. It's summer, so it's time to be a little, you know, it's a little fun. We're going to, um, I, I would love a little bit of your interaction, okay? I'm going to ask you a question, and it's not rhetorical. I'd love for you to shout out. Kids, feel free. Shout out. This is for everyone. Um, and the question is this. What comes to your mind 
when you hear the word worship, okay? What sort of feelings does it bring about? What sort of images does it evoke? What comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? Oh, man. Whoa, okay, great. Wow, this is good. Awesome. Pray, and then what was the other one? Adoration. Adoration, yes. Music. Can I just say, before I keep going, you guys are awesome. First service, they were just slow going, and they say they're morning people, but come on. Like, this was great. I can't even spell you're coming so fast. Keep coming. Joy. Joy. Praise. Thankfulness. Response, humility. What else? Awe. Oh, okay. Awe. Great. Great. What? Energy. Mm. I felt that one. Next. I'm sorry. I won't do this the whole time. I don't have, I'm not, I'm not, they're not funny and I don't have enough in me. What? Freedom. Freedom. Good. images are evoked? What, what feelings? For those feet, I know we've got feelers, I know we know we've got cognitive folks, so, you know, lean into your strengths here. Artists, lean into those images that are popping up in your mind. Hands. There you go. There we go. Thanks, Emily. Fullness. Fullness. Oh, boy. I, I had Mississippi education. I'm sorry. There are going to be times I'm just going to scribble because I don't know how to spell a word. Light. Light. What was that? Blue. Blue? Way to go. All right. I want to talk to you later about that. That's good. What else? What comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? Looking upward. Yeah. It's not just an ecstatic experience, but there's some awareness and engagement. Good. Community. Community. Yes. I heard relationship and then something else. Prayer. Prayer. So we got two for pray. I like that. We've got we've got this emphasis relationship. What else? What else? What's that? Worthy. What? Worthy. Worthy. That's my wife. Way to go. All right. She gets the gold star. Sorry. I'm not biased at all. <laughs> That's not, it's going to be a conversation point later. Now, <clears throat> what else? Connection. Connection. Yeah. Two more. You've been, you've, maybe you've been quiet and you're like, I don't know if I want to say it. Say it. Two more. Jesus. Thank you. There you go. All right. Good, good. Yeah. One more. What was it? Ah, full. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll add that right there and then put an underline. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, see, I knew you guys were a bright bunch. Look at you. You started strong and then you finished well. Way to go. Um, in one sense, <clears throat> worship is all of this. You know, um, it's interesting when you think about worship and what worship is. Our contemporary English word worship, it comes from the old English word worthship. Even though the concept is as old as humankind. But it was a little easier to kind of elucidate what the definition was when it was so explicit in the word. (laughs) Worship is affirming or assigning ultimate worth to someone or something. 
Worship is this absolute surrender that engages the whole person because you found the highest valuable thing in the world and you want to give yourself to it. And what we find here when we start talking about worship is we actually find the core of the Christian faith. More than just right thinking or right behavior, as important as those are and as good as they are for us, those are categories that actually fit into something so much bigger, the category of worship, of worship. So with that in mind, um, you're, you're welcome to continue to engage, but I'm not going to require the same level of engage, vocal engagement along the way. But please feel free. Uh, I'm going to ask another question that is a little more rhetorical. The reason I say that is because we kept going for a service, and I was like, I wasn't ready for it. Um, <clears throat> here's the question. With that in mind, what would it take for you to worship someone? What would it take for you to do all of this, to worship someone? Listen, there, there are plenty of people that we admire, that we adore, you know, if Eric Hosmer, first basin of the, uh, the Royals, were to walk in this room, the temperature in this place would change, wouldn't it? And there are plenty of people who pique our interest, that, that, you know, get us excited about what they've done or what they can do or the kind of people they are, but that's still not worship, not really. And so I want to ask again, and I want you to think about this, what would it take for you to really and wholly worship someone. In the first century, across the Roman Empire, the people of the Roman Empire thought that their rulers were worthy of their worship. And who do you think has the highest value in the empire? The emperor, right? Caesar. Caesar does, and with good reason to some degree. I mean, Caesar is the one who is to usher in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome for the people of Rome. Caesar was supposed to be like this semi-divine being, this godlike character who knew the inner workings of the world so that he could provide protection and food for his people, and the people worshipped him for it. Everyone did. Everyone, that is, except for one group of people. Everyone except for one group who would never even imagine worshiping a human being, the Jewish people. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus were strictly monotheistic. Mono meaning one, theo meaning God. And this showed up in their religious identity and their liturgical life, the way they kind of lived out that identity with these certain practices. And we can see that in just one snippet of this liturgical practice called the Shema. The Shema, where that name comes from, is it's actually the first Hebrew word of this line that they would say. Some Jewish folks would say it once, and they would face Jerusalem when they would say it once a day. Wherever Jerusalem was, if it was to the west, they would face to the west. If it was to the east, they would face to the east. Some would say it three times a day at every meal. Some five times a day. And here it is. It's actually out of Deuteronomy. When Moses is writing the people of God and he says, hey, teach your children this. Make sure everybody holds on to this. And it's this. Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uno. Mono. The Lord our God is one. And to be Jewish meant that there was only one creator and ruler over the whole world. There was only one God, and his name, as we best can pronounce it in Hebrew, Yahweh, is alone of worship. He alone is worthy of this worship. And so many Jewish people would lose influence in their work, and some would even lose their lives fighting for this exclusive worship of one God, because they would never worship Caesar. They would never worship a human being. And then we come to our passage Something happens that really kind of blows all of this out of the water. Something that, that seems so out of place. These devout Jewish men who have been following Jesus, he's the latest rabbi, he's pretty smart, and they've been watching, they've been following, they've been imitating, and they knew there was something interesting about him, but then we get to the climax of our passage, and this is why we needed to listen to this long passage, because it's a long day, and it, it comes to this moment in verse 33, and those in the boat, speaking of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, worshipped him, Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They worship Jesus. Now, 21st century, we hear this and we say, of course, 2,000 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is what the disciples, this is what the apostles do. I mean, they're the champions of Jesus, so of course they're going to say that. But in the first century, these Jewish men 
are doing something no one would have ever thought. In one sense, this makes no sense. I mean, this was heresy of the highest magnitude. This is what led Israel into exile. This was the sin that was worthy of death. And now Matthew's writing a Jewish man recording this scenario. And he says, hey, there was something that happened that we saw in Jesus when we were in the boat and it made us worship him. Now, to kind of get the magnitude of what's happening here, um, I like to think of it like this. Imagine that the Jewish people are like ultra vegans, okay, in the first century. Um, they, they came from generations after generation after generation of ultra-vegans. You'd never let your son marry someone else who wasn't also an ultra-vegan. I mean, they had slogans like, you know, don't eat meat, instead choose wheat. You know, cows have feelings too. And, and then suddenly, when every time they thought about meat, they remember the last time they ate meat and their stomachs would explode. It was just, meat was not something that was a part of their category in a world of meat-eaters, and then you walk down to Plaza 3, and you see these 12 men, these Jewish men, sinking their teeth into a raw steak, smiling. And you say, what is happening? That's the best I can say to kind of capture the magnitude. This is against everything that they'd known up until this point, or at least it appears to be that way. Because worshiping one God wasn't just a preference. This was their identity. And they saw something in Jesus, maybe a gathering of a couple of things. And they didn't have all their questions answered. They didn't have it all figured out. But they'd made one conclusion about Jesus. He was worthy of their worship. And when we look at our text this morning, we're going to look at what it took for them and the significance of those events that they worship Jesus and then ask the question back to ourselves, what would it take for me to worship someone? What would it take for you to worship someone? Now, if you are new with us, we've been walking through Matthew's gospel account for like a decade or six months, same thing, right? It feels like that for some of you. And currently in this, this chapter, in the previous chapter, Matthew has made a turn and he's escalating the rate at which he's pulling back the curtain on who this Jesus is below the skin. And he's showing us that Jesus is the long-awaited cosmic king revealed and the significance of what that means for us. So if you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles, your Bible apps to Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to look at one of the longest days in the day and the day of a life of a disciple here of Jesus. The day begins kind of in the same way that it does every day with Jesus in the first century, with somebody hearing about Jesus and saying, who is this Jesus, and where does he get this power? Where does he get this authority? Because often it was those who had power and authority who felt really threatened by Jesus and how he was doing things and what he was saying, that they're the ones who are often asking this question. And everybody's got their theories. It's really not that different than it is from today. Everybody had a way to understand Jesus. When we've been walking through Matthew, we saw that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they thought Jesus was satanic. His hometown thought that Jesus was getting a little too big for his britches. And then we come now to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great dies. He's actually an amazing, very wicked leader, but had great influence. And he dies, and his kingdom is split up into four parcels. And each one of four of his sons get to lead a parcel, and Herod Antipas is one of those sons. And when he hears about Jesus' fame... His assumption, his conclusion is, well, Jesus must be John the Baptist resurrected to annoy me. <laughs> Why does he think this? Why does he think this? Well, there's this whole weird story that's these first 12 verses of chapter 14 that I just want to review with us very quickly. First, Herod Antipas, he stole his brother's wife, okay? That's a good way for family dynamics to really flourish, right? Steal your brother's wife. So he steals his brother's wife, and they get married, and then John the Baptist never really let this go. Um, he's out with the masses, and he's like, Herod Antipas, you immoral man, you know, and Herod Antipas is this ruler, and he's like, come on, John, and, Her and John just keeps calling him out time and time again and saying that his marriage goes against God's law, and th th as a people, as a Jewish king of sorts, how can he stand, how can we stand for this? And it's causing political unrest. And so Herod does what leaders do when they don't have power in check. They imprison John the Baptist, right? He imprisons John the Baptist. And this is where the story gets real weird real quick. 
You see, Herod Antipas does something we've all thought about doing, but rare, most of us haven't really had the gumption to do it. He throws a birthday party for himself, right? <laughs> and uh, he gets super wasted. Um, and, and just so you know, in the first century, they didn't have these parties together. It was, it was culturally uh, unacceptable for men and women to party together. So they have one room where the women were and then one room where the men were. And Herod is with all of his male guests, and they're getting just drunk out of their minds. And Herodias, this woman he's fought for, um, she sends in her daughter, Herod's niece, who's probably 12 to 14 years of age, as far as we know from Josephus's Jewish, Jewish antiquities. He's also recording this scenario. And she dances for all of these men. And the text says it pleases Herod. Now, we don't know what that means, but the chances are really, really, really good that it wasn't good. <clears throat> and so it pleases Herod so much in his drunken stupor, he makes this outlandish oath. I'll give you whatever you want, Salome. And Herodias had made this plan. She'd used her daughter, this teenage girl, to further her purposes, to gain her pleasures, to fulfill her dreams, just like so many of the women that are on display, even in this space today. This isn't new, and this isn't old. People are just messed up. And so Salome actually asks her mother, and Herodias says, I want you to ask for John the Baptist's head. Uh, because Herod wasn't the only one who was ticked that John the Baptist was talking about their marriage. Herodias had had enough. Which, by the way, how many Herods do you have to have in a story to make it a good story? You have Herod the Great, you have Herod Antipas, and then Herodias. It's like, come on, give me a break. It's hard to tell that story. Um, but anyway, so she asks for John the Baptist's head. And so Herod, he instantly feels sorry, the text says. And not because he has any sort of affection towards John the Baptist. Herod only cares about Herod, okay? But the reason he's sorry is because he knows the people see John the Baptist as a prophet, and if he takes John the Baptist's life, it's going to cause political unrest. It's going to cause issues, and he's going to be really frustrated with all this mess he's got to clean up. But weak men fear feeling and looking weak before other men. And so he will not recant his oath. And instead, he goes and he has John the Baptist decapitated, which is actually against Jewish law as well. And this head comes on a platter and becomes the centerpiece of the party for a bit, and then becomes the centerpiece of Salome and Herodias's private chambers. I told you it was going to be weird, all right? So this is a very, very weird story. So now you can imagine Herod Antipas, which we know from other historical documents, who is very superstitious. We can see here is very clearly very fearful. And I'm going to give him a, t a tinge of grace and probably has a bit of guilt over what he's done. So when he starts to hear about what Jesus is doing and how it kind of sounds similar to what John was doing, of course he's going to make the assumption, Jesus, oh, he's John the Baptist resurrected to come and annoy me. Because all he's doing is being consumed with his guilt, being consumed with his experience. Everybody has their theories about Jesus. Some more ridiculous than others, but this is what we need to see. So often people will come to Jesus and they'll begin to see Jesus through their experiences rather than an honest assessment of the facts. And that's true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. And Matthew is concerned, somebody who walked and talked with Jesus, for us to see who is this Jesus really? If he's not John the Baptist raised from the dead, who is he? And is he worthy of our worship? Well, let's see. Now, when you get to verse 13, we start to enter a new phase, a new story. Jesus, he hears about what happened to John the Baptist, and he just wants some space to process, to pray, and think through what's going on. And so he goes to a desolate place to kind of avoid the crowds. But the crowds find him. They always seem to find Jesus. And any lesser man would be annoyed that the crowds had found him. Any righteous man, actually, would be a bit indignant. Can't I just have some space? But what do we see in verse 14 is Jesus' response. He has compassion on the crowds. His heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching compassion. That's what that word means. It's like physiological, this gut-wrenching pain. When he sees the people who are sick, who are wounded, who have been abused by leaders like Herod, who engage in these drunken parties and abuse women, it's like, and he sees them coming, and, and, he, and he just starts healing the sick until the sun starts to come down. And the disciples, they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, this is really great. 
but we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And if we want these people to get any dinner, we're going to have to dismiss them now. And they're going to have to go to some of the surrounding towns before the shops close. And then Jesus goes, no, they don't. You give them something to eat. <laughs> it's a good start, right? You give them something to eat. And then the, the disciples kind of look at each other and they say, look, we're in the middle of nowhere. All we've got are these five loaves, these two fish. It's going to take a miracle to feed these folks. That was my test to see if you're awake. Sorry, it was a really bad joke. Anyway, keep going. Um, and Jesus says, well, fine, just give that stuff to me. Look in verse 18, bring them here to me. One helpful discipline when you're reading scripture isn't to not just look at what is there, but look at what isn't there. What does Jesus not say? He doesn't say, all right, let's gather together, let's make a plan, and let's pray over this, and then we'll figure out our next steps. Because it's not about that. This is a moment where Jesus is going to display his power. He's going to display who he is. And so he says, just give it to me. Just bring that stuff to me and watch. And Matthew was there. He's watching all of this go down. We read at the end of our passage, or right up in verse 21, that there's about 5,000 men, which doesn't include the women and children. So there's probably around 10 to 15,000 people, which is bigger than most towns. So this is a gathering of multiple towns of people who are longing for healing. And Jesus sits them down in the grass. He takes the bread and the loaves. He begins to bless them. And then he starts breaking it. And it fills the first basket. And then it fills the second basket. And then another, and then another, and then another. And people's heads are starting to turn. And everybody's got enough, the text says, to be satisfied. This is like that Thanksgiving unbuckle your belt kind of satisfied, watch a little football satisfied. And not only that, is everybody full and satisfied, but then you have the 12 disciples all standing out front with a basket full themselves. People are so full, they can't even imagine taking another taste or they're going to toss their cookies. I mean, this is, there is a surplus here. And you can only imagine what Matthew's thinking when he's looking down at his basket. If you were a Jewish person, I can tell you what you're thinking. You're thinking back to a time when God brought his people out of Egypt and brought them to another desolate place, when he brought them to the wilderness. And when Moses was standing there, and he saw the people hungry, and God said, I will give you manna, which literally means what is it, but it's kind of like a bread that tastes like honey crisp, you know, like it's got the, I, I, you know, I realize this tastes like, that sounds like a cereal, doesn't it? The honey crisp cereal, but it wasn't honey crisp, you know, that's not like God's cereal now boxed, you know, hey, um, but it tasted like honey, and it was crispy, and, it, and what God said is, while you're going through the wilderness for these 40 years, you will have enough to satisfy you. When they rebelled against him, for those 40 years, God always brought the manna and they were satisfied. But here, not only were they satisfied, but there's a surplus. There's an over and abundance, which causes everyone to say, who is this Jesus? What is going on? Who could he be? You see, throughout history, bread has been used for political means. If you know anything about kind of first century history or even just the history of Rome, You've probably heard of bread and circuses, bread and circuses. This was kind of shorthand for how the, uh, the, the, the Caesars would use circuses to entertain the peasants and bread to feed them and distract them from the injustices they were committing over here, the power and the wealth they were accumulating over here, because if they could just feed the masses, they could manipulate them. They could get them to do whatever they wanted. It's really popular in political theory and when you look throughout history. But how is God using bread here? The king of the universe who's come to make the world a right. We don't see a God come to manipulate people. When his heart is revealed, we actually see that he is the compassionate king. That the defining characteristic of who he is at the very core is not manipulation. It's not power hungry. It's actually compassion, this gut-wrenching desire that when he sees pain, when he sees needs, he longs to provide out of compassion and listen this isn't just some really nice story of something that happened in the first century on a grassy hill by the Sea of Galilee. Standing this side of the resurrection with Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit working among his people, God is still worthy to be trusted with our needs. You can trust him with your needs. Whatever's weighing you down, whatever burden, whatever you came in here this morning and you're hungering and you're aching for, you can trust Jesus with that. 
You know, I don't know about you, but there are times like when I'm in prayer and uh, maybe I've been praying for something over the past couple of years, something that's been weighing on my heart. And then my imagination starts to go and I start to think about what God's face looks like or the emotion he's communicating. I know, I'm not saying this is theologically accurate. I'm just saying this is what happens to me, okay? And sometimes I get this picture of like Jesus like, come on, Gabe, I've got it under control. Like this almost dismissive or disappointed. But what we find here with Jesus is that even when you've come to him a thousand times, even when you come to him with the simplest of things, even when you come to him and it feels like nothing's happening, he's never going to dismiss you. That the very core of who God is, at the very core of who Christ is, we see his compassion, compassion. And he longs for the best for you, even more than you want for you, which kind of blows our minds. And it's hard to see that, but that is what Jesus has come to reveal about who God is, about who he is. And we need to see it. And it may not show up in something miraculous in your life, but I can almost bet that every single person in here has had that moment where you feel like you didn't have enough to get by. Emotional energy, enough finances, enough relational capacity, what have you. And some of you in here I know as well have spent time in prayer and you said, I, I, I don't know if I can go on, but Jesus, this is all I've got. And, he's, and you gave it to him and he carries you through. That doesn't mean a life without suffering. That doesn't mean a life without pain, but that means a life and awareness of his presence as he carries you through that pain and that suffering, those hard times. Listen this morning, if you're actually sitting in this room, you're a testament to the compassion of God. You're a testament to the compassion of God. If you've ever known the regularity of a meal, he may not have provided for 5,000 in your midst, but everybody in here who's received the regularity of a meal, you've tasted and seen God's compassion through the ordinary means of his world and his people. Even the things we take for granted, we've got a water fountain over here, clean water, how rare is that throughout history and even still throughout the world? Yes, more clean water is being provided, but that is a testament to God's compassion that he's providing for you, that he cares for you, that you can trust him with every need that interacts in your life. He is the compassionate king. What will it take for you to worship someone? To not just admire and be intrigued with Jesus, but worship him. Let's return to the final story here in Matthew. You know, in verse 22, the language here is very striking. Jesus is very stern with the disciples. He says, it's almost like this moment has turned into a fast food frenzy. He's like, get in the boats and go across the lake now. I mean, it's really intense. And Jesus is like, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the crowds. You guys get in the boat and you get over there. So they get in the boat. And Jesus goes up the mountain and he's praying an evening finally falls, and a storm breaks out over the Sea of Galilee. Now, I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and I've seen how this geography is just primed for these spark-up storms, not just a storm that sparks up over hours, but minutes. You've got the Mediterranean sea breeze that comes across the desert, and when you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, just there to the west, there's this mini mountain range, and when that sea breeze hits that mountain range, it sparks into storms. And at this point... We read that the disciples have been wrestling with a storm all night. This shouldn't have been that long of a journey to get across the Sea of Galilee. And instead, we find them battling the wind and the waves for nine hours. Matthew tells us it's the fourth watch, which is somewhere in between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And they've been battling. They're exhausted. And then somebody kind of notices something off in the distance. And then someone realizes that that something isn't a something, it's a someone. And, uh, and they're walking on the water, and they're not crying out for help, and they're not screaming, and they're heading this way. <laughs> you know, I feel like this, and I think this is pretty contextually accurate. This is like the Blair Witch moment <laughs> in Scripture. You know that moment where they've got the camera, and all of a sudden they're like going around, <gasps> and then they like look up, and then, ah, there it is. Um, because what happens, the text says, they scream because they're terrified because they thought they saw a ghost. I mean, this is totally the Blair Witch moment, just to let you know. Now you know where it is. Um, it's right here. And what, when they start freaking out and they're screaming, they're terrified because people just don't walk on water. That's not something that you know that, ha hey, Bob's walking on the water again. Look at it. Hey, come here. Um, no, this is, this is extremely rare. And 
<laughs> to say the least. And, and Jesus says, look, I know you guys are terrifying. Take, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter does something that really is astounding. He says, if it is you. In actuality, the condition is more certain than that in the Greek. It's, since it's you, tell me to come out on the water. Why? Because they're disciples. They're apprentices. Jesus is teaching them to do what he has done. So if you're really Jesus, and I think that's you, I want to do what you're doing, so call me out on the water. And so Jesus says, come. And Matthew steps out on the water. And you, you know, I, I don't know, if I was Matthew, like sitting in the boat, watching this all go down, I'm like, oh, oh. like he takes a step and he's like actually floating on the water. And then maybe everybody else is about ready to jump in too. And then Peter sinks. Nope, not me. <laughs> Peter starts going down. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And within a moment's notice, Jesus grabs him eye to eye and says, oh, Peter, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And then he pulls him up and he escorts him back to the boat. All the while, the storm is raging. <laughs> you know, waves are smacking him in the face. I mean, this is not like the calm, glassy sea in the middle of, you know, uh, the Algonquin Park or something in Canada, and it's like, oh, it looks like a mirror. No, this is like waves and white caps. And when they finally get in the boat, that's when the wind stops. That's when the waves subside. And they hadn't seen anything like this. I mean, people just don't walk on water. And they, most people, <laughs> no one else can make other people walk on water by mere command. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, in that moment, the climax isn't even in the calming of the storm. You know, sometimes we can stop there and then we can say, that's the story. The climax is actually what the disciples say in light of what they've seen in the midst of the storm. This is the climax. When they now fall down and they worship Jesus and they say, all right, you're legit. That's what that truly means, you know, in the Greek. You're legit. This is legit. You are the son of of God. And listen, they didn't understand all of what they said in that moment. It's kind of like you're on a date and it's the first time you tell someone you love them. <laughs> and then you wake up the next morning and you're like, ah, what did I just say? <laughs> you know, you know, you think, oh, I think I meant that. You know, I think I meant that. And sometimes you're like, no, I didn't mean that. And then other times, uh, you know, in some of those real special moments, you realize that actually you meant it more than you could have ever thought. Or even if, as you began to follow Jesus and you say, he's, he's my Lord and my Savior, and then a decade passes. And you look back and you say, I had no idea. I didn't even know the half of what that meant when I said that. And the same is true here for the disciples. They don't have all their questions answered. They don't understand how the, all the inner workings of how we have God the Son and God the Father and coming soon, you know, God the Holy Spirit, and how that works together in one true God. But they knew one thing, that Jesus was beyond their imagination. And he was somehow worthy of their worship. And he was somehow the Son of God. Now, in the midst of all of this, the real thing that changes almost everything for them is not that just Jesus is the compassionate king, that he's got this wonderful and beautiful heart, but he's the powerful king, the powerful king. Compassion driven by now all power is something that now leads you to worship and adore and be amazed. I mean, if you scour the pages of Scripture, there are plenty of miracles that happen with water. Moses, right, he parts the Red Sea by the power of God. Joshua parts the Jordan. Elijah and Elisha have these miracles with water too. But no one treads on the water but God himself. We see this in Job chapter 9. It is only God who treads on the water. And think back to what Jesus says to him when he comes treading on the water. Take heart or take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. When you actually understand what's being said there in the Greek, it's actually, take heart, I am. There's an emphasis on the I at the beginning. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Which sounds kind of weird to us. Like, why, why would it be worded this way? Well, if, you've look, if you look across the pages of Scripture, specifically the Older Testament, you'll find 
that there is this, the name for the Lord in all caps. And you keep thinking, well, does anybody know how to use all caps when they're doing this translation? Why does this keep popping up? That's not an error, okay? That's a very much intentional translational purpose. It's meant to capture God's personal name, the best way we know how to pronounce it, that Yahweh that I mentioned earlier. And they put Lord in all caps. And the very basis, the word that Yahweh is based off of is I am. I am. Look, Jesus isn't jumping through hoops. I'm not trying to jump through hoops. He's connecting the dots. And for a Jewish person, the dots were making a constellation of God's wonder. As they see Jesus doing what only God can do, and he actually takes on the name that is reserved for the true God of Israel. And it leads them to worship. It leads them to worship. You know, Paul, he was also a zealous Jewish man, and he was actually a Pharisee, so zealous that he's persecuting Christians because he thought they were committing this heresy of worshiping someone other than the true God, this Jesus. And on the way, on the road to Damascus, we read, he, he interacts with the resurrected Lord and everything changes. Suddenly, he believes that Jesus is worthy of worship, such that when he's writing to a church in Colossae, he can write this, listen, he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What Jesus was communicating, Paul makes very explicit. And if God became flesh, it changes everything. If he's fully compassionate and all-powerful, you know what that means? Is that, that means you can trust him with the deepest and darkest fears of your life. Those things that keep you up at night, those things that, that cause you to get anxious and worried, those things that have shaken up your life, you can surrender them to him. And I want you to remember something interesting here. Jesus is in control this whole time. If he can calm the storm as soon as he gets in the boat, he knew the storm was coming and he could have calmed it at any point, but he sends the disciples into the storm. He's walking on the water in the midst of the storm. When Peter comes out on the water, he doesn't calm the storm then. Even when Peter sinks, the water has yet to be calm. It's only after they're in the boat now, why? Why does Jesus do this? That's because there's only a certain aspect of who God is that can be revealed in those storms. And, and more than likely, there's something in your own heart that God wants to reveal as well. You see, there's something so interesting about Peter's beautiful example here we find in the passage. He sees Jesus, and he so desperately wants to follow him that he says, if that's you, have me walk out on the water. And Jesus says, come, and he obeys. And Jesus sustains his steps. But here's one thing we need to note, okay? None of the other disciples walked on water. <laughs> Nor do we have any other record of when Peter walked on water again. So I better not hear of anybody trying this at home in their bathtub, all right? That's not the point of this passage. Here's what we see. Two things I think that are are explicitly true. One, this isn't the first time that Peter has surrendered his fears to Jesus. Jesus, Peter's first experience with Jesus was when he said, come and follow me. And he surrenders everything to follow Jesus. And the, the, the many times he says yes in private to Jesus, the many times he follows and he's becoming an apprentice and more and more learning what it means to follow Jesus that are out of the public eye, that aren't very grandiose, that seem really small and menial, as he's surrendering his fears time and again to Jesus, that he finally says, yes, get in the boat and cross the lake. Now, get in the boat and cross the lake. And he gets in the boat and he says, yes. It's in saying yes to all these small things that will ever be ready to say yes to the big areas of life. Don't expect that the first experience with Jesus is this huge yes to something that seems incomprehensible. It's a training. It's an apprenticeship. It's a discipleship that Jesus calls us to, not just these flash experiences of greatness. And then secondly, every one of the disciples benefited from Peter's stepping out. Like the disciples weren't thinking, Peter, you're stupid. There's no one else out there. <laughs> 
And then when Peter plops out and falls in the water, see, I told you, no. They heard and confirmed that Jesus had called him out onto the water. They maybe had their doubts too. But when Peter walks on water, it actually, it brings greater strength to the faith of everybody else in the boat. When you begin to surrender your fears to Christ, it should strengthen the broader community of followers of Jesus. When they see what God's doing in your life and they say, whoa, who is this Jesus? Not necessarily you, but who is this Jesus? And it spurs on greater worship of Christ as we surrender and begin to follow him. And listen, that kind of entrusting our fears to Jesus, trusting that kind of powerful king, you can do that today too. That's something that can be true in each and every one of our lives. Each and every one of us. But you know, there's, I think there's one more thing um, that we have to keep in mind. Jesus isn't just the compassionate king and he's, he's not just the powerful king. There's one more thing quickly that we have to see that Matthew wants us to see or we'll never be able to stand before Jesus and worship him. You see, Peter, yeah, he steps out in this bold faith, to be sure. But then he does something we're all too familiar with in our own lives. He fails. We all know failure, and maybe that's one of our biggest fears of all, is failure. We get consumed with looking at our circumstances, or we begin to follow Jesus in the wind of wave, in waves of life. They, they start to look overbearing to us. And, and surely as we step out, we, we can get consumed by the doubts, and it shows up in questions like, how long can Jesus sustain me in this? It's not, I don't think the hardest steps are really the first steps. It's the 10th and the 15th steps sometimes. How long can Jesus really sustain me in this? With all the cultural tide pressing in against me, how long can Jesus sustain me in this? Those waves look a lot bigger than I thought they did a minute ago. I don't think I can do this anymore. And it's at that moment when we've moved our, our focus from Jesus back to what we think we can do when it's come back upon us as if we were the ones who were sustaining ourselves this whole time, that's when we begin to falter. And you see, we need to understand it's Jesus is the one who sustains our steps. He's the one who deserves our focus, our worship, our gaze. He's the only one who can hold us up. Even when you thought it was your ingenuity or your emotional strength that got you through, it's God's compassion behind the scenes and the way he's wired you and he's working in you. Even then, that's him. And his common grace, the way he works through so many people. And that's the problem, isn't it? We so easily just want him to be the powerful king, and we want him to so desperately be the compassionate king, but we don't want to admit that we need him to be the merciful king. To not give us what we do deserve is what mercy means. And what mercy means is that they don't give you punishment. Peter's the one who doubted. He was the one who was sinking. He's the one who deserved to sink to the bottom. We all deserve to sink to the bottom, but by God's mercy, by Christ's mercy, he reaches and grabs Peter. When Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And you know, there's no truer and simpler statement to who Jesus is and what he's come to do than that simple statement. Lord, save me. That's enough. We see Matthew chapter 1, verse 29. He will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is what Jesus has come to do. Right here in the midst of the storm is the only place where Peter finally admits that he's helpless. And you can't just see that he's powerful. You can't just see that he's compassionate, but you have to embrace his mercy. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how shameful it may feel in the dark, you can trust him with your failures. That's the kind of king we have. Those failures that haunt us, that stir our stomachs, that when we look in the mirror, we say, who is that man? Who is that woman? How could I have done that? You can trust him with your fears. Now, does Jesus rebuke Peter? Yes. But does he first, in response to the cry for salvation, reach down and rescue? Yes. Because his rescue is more than just a momentary deliverance, but it's a full-on shaping us into the kind of people who can stand at the waves and say, my king is over you. My king is more powerful than you. And that's a whole new way of living. 
This kind of king who's compassionate, who's powerful, and he's merciful. This is the kind of king we all deep down want. This is the kind of king, especially when we survey our landscape today, we desperately need. This is the kind of king we can have if we will admit with Jesus who he says he is, who those who walked and talked with him most intimately say he was and is. If we worship him, if we let him be the highest value in our hearts. Remember, that's what worship means. And if we let him define what our greatest need is. If he's the highest value in all of creation and we are separated from him, our greatest need is fixing that separation. And that separation has been, been made by yours and my sin. And by his power, out of his compassion and through his mercy, this is all displayed most beautifully in the cross. More evident do we see God's brilliant heart and power and compassion and mercy in the cross than we can ever see in a storm. And you know what's so fascinating? When you come to Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, there's a Roman centurion standing there at the foot of the cross. And when Jesus breathes his last, Emmanuel, God with us, who became God broken for us, and he breathes his last and the earth shakes this Roman centurion, you know what he says? Look it up later. Romans 27, verse 54. Sounds strangely familiar. Truly, he was the son of God. Don't miss this. There's nothing more powerful than the beauty of who God has displayed upon the cross and paying for our sin out of his mercy and compassion and the power of forgiveness that he has made a way that we can now know and worship him, the highest valuable and most worthwhile person in all of the universe. And with the same power that he quieted the storms, he quiets the claims that death has on us when he comes three days later out of the tomb. And if we learn to worship him, quickly, listen to this. If, you, if we learn to worship him, you'll always have enough in seasons of plenty and in seasons of want, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians. If we learn to worship him, no storm will be able to shake us. We may be cracked, but we are not broken. We are not destroyed. And we actually become a people of resilience, of courage, who can look at the waves that terrified us before, and they now become platforms for God's glory in the midst of a chaotic world. Is Jesus worth all of this and more to you? What will it take for you to worship someone? Not just admire, be intrigued, have an interesting hobby, thinking about a couple hours a week, but let him transform the totality of your life in a life of worship this week. What would it take? And let me ask you a different question. Hasn't Jesus already done enough? Let's pray. Father, when we talk about the Son and we think about these 33 verses, there's clearly a lot here. I know I've just even touched the surface of the beauties of who you are and the depths of your heart in our passage. You're glorious. You're compassionate when we are annoyed. You're all-powerful when we are weak and stumbling. You're merciful when we feel zealous towards revenge, or even fearful in our failures. This is who you are. May we see you afresh. May you stir within our own hearts a greater sense of your highest value. And may that shape every sphere of our lives, we pray, as we seek to understand and follow and enter your joy in the process. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our God. Amen.